0: Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're gonna continue our time of worship by studying uh, God's word together. So if you would open up the Bible to Matthew's gospel chapter one. We're gonna dive into this text together and really pick up right where we left off last week. So I'm gonna start reading in Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God with us. When Joseph woke up He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. I remember a conversation very well. It was from years ago, but I remember it well. A boy, probably in the ninth grade, maybe eighth or ninth grade, and he was talking to me about his Christian faith, And he asked me the question, have you ever had doubts? He was clearly struggling with some doubts about the Christian faith. And I said, absolutely. And the moment that I said, absolutely, it was almost like he just implicitly trusted that that was true. And therefore he was in a normal space, not an abnormal space. And there was just relief all over the face of my favorite overthinker and eldest son Hunter Mason, who is introspective, just like his dad. He comes by it honestly. Just to confirm, though, after there was a sense of relief on his face, just to confirm, he did say, so I'm not going to hell, right? (laughs) And I didn't leave him hanging. I was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we kept talking about that. But just think about this. Can we be of people and a generation of Christians that normalizes the struggle of faith, that faith is a fight, that it's not easy street to believe these wild and amazing supernatural claims that lie right at the center and foundation of the Christian faith. Here's the thing, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. Sight would be easier, wouldn't it? That's the hard part is the sightlessness of our walk, the sightlessness of our experience. We don't see Jesus Christ at this moment standing right before us in his exalted glory. We walk by faith and that reality that we walk by faith proves at some point or another to be a struggle. If you've ever watched uh, rock climbing videos, uh, you've maybe seen videos where a climber is You know, he's on El Capitan or someplace around the world. It's just it's like a window pane made out of rock. And you're wondering, how do they even climb something like this? And they'll reach for just the smallest little hold. And maybe you've seen videos where the person will reach for the, the hold and their hand will slip and they'll go swinging out against the mountain. It is a terrifying thing. They don't plummet. They're they're caught, but the reason that they don't plummet, the reason that they fall but don't die in those many of those videos is is because their rope is looped through a climbing anchor. And that climbing anchor is driven into the mountain. It is fastened into the rock itself. So he doesn't fall off the mountain because he's tethered to the mountain. And even though his grip is broken, he's linked up to the mountain. You think about that. When you become... Uh, a Christian, if you will, it's not like free solo climbing where there's no rope and it's all on you to hang on. It's so much better than that, right? No, you you clip yourself into anchors that catch you should you fall. Should your grip fail, they catch you. One of the anchors that you clip into by faith is the doctrine of the incarnation that God became flesh. God took up our humanity in the person of Jesus, fully man and fully God, the amazing mystery of Advent. So four themes that run through our text. The first is this, a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith. And Matthew tells the story exactly the way it unfolded back there in the first century. So in verse 18, Joseph and Mary are engaged, or some translations might say were betrothed. So just think about this. Consider the promise and the penalty for just a moment. The promise and the penalty. So betrothal was a promise. Betrothal was, was not just any old promise. It was a promise with teeth in it. It was a very serious thing to become betrothed. It was a binding promise. So in, in that particular culture, and in that particular time, the betrothed woman, though she's a fiance, could be called wife. And the betrothed man though a fiance could be called the husband and to, to break a betrothal you needed divorce papers. You needed to go through actual divorce proceedings. More sobering still in Deuteronomy chapter 22 stipulated that the, if there was an unfaithful party in that betrothal the unfaithful fiance was to be stoned to death. So you can imagine of course Mary's distress when the angel tells her, you're gonna be pregnant and it's not gonna be Joseph. So you're gonna show up pregnant and you're gonna to have to tell a story that's gonna be impossible for almost everybody to believe. No wonder she is fearful. And the angel has to say, do not be afraid, Mary. No wonder not only Mary, but Joseph for his part. Joseph is deeply distressed. Verse 18, when he discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So betrothal was a promise, and unfaithfulness had a penalty. So that's the promise and the penalty. Consider this as well. Consider the witness's testimony. So what's Mary going to say when everybody sees that Mary is suddenly pregnant? Here's what she's gonna say. If you read Luke's account, it gives the story from Mary's side, Mary's point of view. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That's the miracle that's about to take place. But the problem is, we already know this story, right? And so, this story is very familiar to us, but try to climb into the story and pretend you don't know the things that, in fact, they don't know. So, you're Joseph. All right, just climb into Joseph's shoes. You're Joseph. You just got engaged. You set a date, it's on the calendar, and your fiance turns up pregnant. And what do you know? What you know is this it wasn't me. It wasn't me, and I know how this works. Right? We, we know, again, we know how the story ends. So if we're not careful, we imagine you know Mary gets a little baby bump and Joseph starts singing, Mary, did you know? Right? Well, that, that's us because we know where the story is about to go. But in reality, what's Joseph really going to do? He's not going to sing, Mary, did you know? He's going to divorce her. See verse 19. So her husband Joseph, being, note this, a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her. Secretly, this is an act of kindness. He doesn't want to go the Deuteronomy 22 route. He doesn't want to see stones flying in her direction and in the direction of the child. So Joseph is kind, but he's not an idiot. Joseph is kind, but he's not naive. He knows how these things work. And by the way, he's not the only one who's not necessarily prepared to believe in virgin births. Nobody back there is really prepared to believe in virgin births. They're about as likely to chalk this up to the Holy Spirit as you would be if you found out someone was pregnant and they claimed it was the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. The people around them weren't prepared to accept this, even years later. So there's an interesting little moment in John's Gospel. You fast forward 30 years and Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders of his day and things get really awkward when parentage and particularly paternal tests comes into the discussion. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. You would imitate your dad, your father. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your, insert real, father does. And here's what they say. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Now, the moment that they say that, you can almost see the smirk appear on their faces when Jesus brings up the issue of who real fathers are and they say, do you really wanna go there? You really wanna go there with us? What, real question, why don't you look like Joseph? You look nothing like Joseph. Oh, so we're expected to believe that the Holy Spirit's your dad. Can you imagine growing up, going to school in a small town, right, in Nazareth, And here the story is your mom got pregnant from the spirit of God. Back in verse 19, Joseph is about to quietly divorce Mary. And then something changes. We move from a crisis of faith to the miracle of faith. The miracle of faith. Look at verse 20 with me. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. So pick up on what's going on here, what's happening. God reveals the truth and vindicates Mary's claim. She's not crazy, the angel tells Joseph. The angel assures Joseph that Mary has not been unfaithful. But by the way, just pause here for just a second. What the Holy Spirit did to bring about the pregnancy of Mary has nothing to do, it's not sexual in nature at all. Matter of fact, the very symbolism and verbiage that's used here reaches all the way back to the very first page of the Bible, when the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, hovered over the emptiness and chaos of an empty world and the spirit hovers over that empty world and brings forth life and that's what the prophecy was saying Joseph the spirit is going to hover over he's going to overshadow you Mary just like on the first page of the bible so you're going to have the genesis and you're going to have a new genesis remember the very first two words of the book of Matthew biblos geneseos book of Genesis. We got a new Genesis, a new start on the world wrapped up in Jesus because the Spirit's about to bring life again. If you're a Christian, one of your anchors on the climb of faith is tied into this truth that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. God creates the universe ex nihilo. God creates the universe out of Of nothing, He made and then placed the sun and the moon and the stars. Surely he can make and then place an embryo in Mary's womb. If you believe the former, what's the struggle with believing the latter? This is all part of a piece of the whole, right? The whole Christian faith is shot through with miraculous power of God. He does what he wants, nobody can stop him. There's nothing that's impossible with God. I love what the great theologian of last century, Donald MacLeod said, The virgin birth stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive there, is no point in proceeding further. If our faith staggers at the virgin birth, what is it going to make of the feeding of the 5,000, the stilling of the tempest, the raising of Lazarus? So without the miracles, Christianity would be easier to believe. The only hiccup there is it would no longer be Christianity. It would be something entirely different. It would be emptied of everything that is distinctively Christian. It would become like Thomas Jefferson's original Bible, that he took a penknife and cut out every passage in the Bible where God did something supernatural that didn't make sense. And so he had, obviously, a very small Bible, was left this by the way is why theological liberalism empties churches because it turns out that people don't want to burn a sunday worshiping a god who's just like them and what do we trade away to get this sensible faith that's easy to grasp we trade away all the magic, all the mystery, all the wonder of the faith, the scope of God's sovereignty, the trembling before his holiness, the wonder of God's mercy, the paradox of humility, the intensity of God's zeal for his own glory, his furious love and jealousy, right? God, as he is, turns out to be unpalatable for fallen humanity. That's why we make the exchange, Romans 1, talks about we would rather an imagined god we can control than the creator who made us and the incarnate son who was born and then bled for us to redeem us so here's the question for you this morning what would you rather logic or wonder What would you rather, logic or wonder? What would you rather, the knowledge of God that you can't get your mind around or the sham of self-rule. You think about the opening and closing, the bookends of Matthew's Gospel. Think about the opening and closing of Matthew's Gospel and what it tells us about the identity of Jesus. The bookends of Jesus's earthly existence are supernatural events. Virgin birth on the one hand, empty tomb on the other. And everything in between is God doing things that don't make sense but he can pull off because he's all powerful, because he's God, because he's all wise, because he is who he is. So there's this crisis of faith. And it's located here that Jesus stands apart from every other human that's ever existed. We deal with him on his own terms or we perish. That's the way it shakes out. So there's a crisis of faith, there's a miracle of faith, and then there is third, the message of faith. So what is the message of Christian faith? What is the good news that the Christian gospel announces? And it's this, sinful man has put himself in the place of God, and for this we deserve to be judged, but God has put himself in the place of sinful man, and this is our salvation. If you believe it, if you repent and believe, your salvation is that God has put himself in the place of you, sinful, human. And all of this is pointing to the significance of Advent and why Jesus shows up. In, in college, I, uh, I worked for a little while at a Disney retail store in the Dallas Mall and uh, wore had to wear the most embarrassing uh, clothes I've ever worn in any job I've ever had. And no, there are no pictures. Somebody sent their pictures or it wasn't true. You know, there are no pictures. Thank heavens there were no cell phones. Um, But we were told when we were trained at that Disney retail store that we would refer to ourselves and every other uh, Disney employee as cast members. No matter where you are, I don't know if this is still true, but every other Disney person uh, is known as a cast member, including at the time Michael Eisner, who was the CEO. I mean, he was the top of the Disney organization. And they told us, listen, on the odd chance, Eisner comes in. He's a cast member just like us. Call him Mike. That's, that's, that's like our, our ethos is you call him Mike because he's a cast member like the rest. Of course, he never showed up in our particular uh, branch, But here's the thing, if he ever did show up, the thing that would probably be foremost in our thoughts isn't what we're supposed to call him, but why is he here? (laughs) What's Eisner doing in the Dallas Mall at our particular branch of the, the Disney store? Why is he here? And that's the same burning question that comes to Advent. Why is he here? Christmas is God come to earth. The question is, why would he do that? And verse 21 answers the question. She will give birth to a son. You are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he's here. Name him so that he can do the thing that he's here to do, namely save people from their sins. Right at the center of the Christian story is the reality of enmity between fallen man and a holy God. So... Here's the story, basically. The world is opposed to God's kingship, and God is opposed to treason. That situation doesn't bode well for the fallen humans in question, right? In my natural state, the only God I want to worship is a God that worships me. So I'm prepared to say, that there's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. As long as once I'm done, he says, there's also a hole in my heart that only you can fill. And so now we're even. <laughs> that, that, that feels right to us, right? Our, our self-absorbed age kind of loves it. To put it more bluntly, I don't want to worship a God. I want to be one. I want the corner office. If there's a corner office in this cosmos, I want that place. The Bible calls that condition sin. And it is baked in ever since Genesis chapter 3. It is a baked in situation. That has been on repeat mode for thousands of years. And there's no remedy to that root issue, fundamental issue of humanity until Jesus arrives. At that moment, right, the angel gives us one massive clue about why God came down. He says, name him, name the child Jesus. Name the child Yeshua. Yeshua means God saves. And that's the perfect name because that's why he came. Name him God has come to save. The reason for his arrival is revealed in his name. So Advent season is another one of those great times throughout the year, right? To remember that the Christian message is not invented by humans. Any group of humans. It's not the product of any philosophical system, any political ideology. No one on earth who's fallen would have come up with this story. Why? Because we're too proud to write a story like this. Christian gospel shouts that salvation is an act of God from stem to stern. It is an act of God planned by the Father, achieved by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. He came. Jesus was God becoming a human. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was born to die to save a people for himself from sin. And when history is over, you think about this, when history is over, there will only have been two times that the justice of God against human sin was poured out full strength. One will be at the return of Jesus and the other was at the cross, At the return of Jesus, when he comes in judgment to all who have rejected him, and at the cross, all who stand behind his cross, he bore our judgment in our place. He turned the cup of the curses over, bone dry. That's why there's no condemnation for those who believe. Much to the surprise of demonic powers and principalities, this whole salvation through the death and suffering Of the substitute was the plan from the beginning. It's not like God was forced to lay his cards face up. He's playing with someone who's deeply crafty and cunning. And so there was a, C.S. Lewis calls it, there was a deeper magic that the enemies of this world did not know about. That they're trying to, you're, Entering into Judas so that Judas betrays him and gets Jesus hung on the cross. Little do they know in the twist of God. Here's how we have it in your notes, if you're taking notes God outmaneuvered the enemy's purposes in the ultimate plot twist of the cross. That's the deeper magic. There's a poem that captures it so well. It's called The Wicked Fairy at the Manger and I'm gonna read it to you in just a second, but it's got some parenthetical explanations here and there because it has words in this poem that we don't really use anymore. Um, So the idea of the wicked fairy at the manger is that the wicked fairy is right there the manger on Christmas Eve, and she's pronouncing a curse over the Christ child. And so here's how the poem goes, The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. My gift for the child. I wish I had a raspy kind of wicked voice. I'm not going to try that because y'all will be talking about that later on rather than this. My gift for the child. Mm. (laughs) That's it. That's that's the end of it. (laughs) No wife, kids, home. No money sense. Unemployable. Friends, yes, but the wrong sort. The work shy, women, wogs petty infringers of the law, persons with notifiable diseases, poll tax collectors, tarts, the bottom rung. His end? I think we'll make it public, prolonged, painful. Right, said the baby, that was roughly what we had in mind. (laughs) And if the baby in the manger had a mic, he just lifted his hand up out of the manger and (laughs) dropped it, right? (laughs) That was the plan from the beginning. Public, prolonged, painful. The death of Jesus on the cross, far from an unforeseen tragedy, was the plan of redemption from the start. And so in this story, we see a crisis of faith, the miracle of faith, the message of faith, and a life of faith. So in one sense... Every time you open your Bible, no matter what the passage is that's in front of you, it's giving you two things. Maybe more, but it's at least giving you two things every time you open the Bible. It's theological and it's devotional. So it's showing you God's glory and then it's telling you how to respond to it. It's directing your response into a response of humility and faith. So how do we see that here in our passage? We're not supposed to walk away from this passage just with a story about history. We're supposed to walk away changed. We're supposed to be walk away looping ours into this gospel anchor, right? So how do we see it here? The whole story is told from Joseph's point of view. So we see Joseph in every, he is the one common person in every single one of these vignettes. It's his family tree that starts the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. It leads to, his. you see his grandpa's name, you see Joseph's dad's name, and then in verse 16, there's Joseph. And then verse 19, you keep reading, it's Joseph that discovers Mary's pregnant. Verse 20, it's Joseph that decides to divorce her quietly. Verse 20 and 21, Joseph is asleep, but we're also asleep and we're in Joseph's head hearing his dream. So we're, everything is about Joseph. Verse 24 and 25, Joseph wakes up from sleep. We watch him wake up, and he becomes a man of action. Everything is centered on Joseph is in all the shots. And this is in our Bible. Matthew the storyteller's put it here in order to urge us on in a life of faith. So the question is, how does this account nurture faith? And it does so by honoring, by esteeming, quiet Acts of trusting in God. Even the language that's used is so intentional. It's like Matthew has built in this verbal call and response. You heard it over here and then you hear it over here. So, my call and response illustration is from high school. I played trumpet as a freshman at Grace King High School. And when we would play, of course, the football teams on the field, there's a band on one side, there's a band on the other. And at some point in the evening, there would be a drum off. Their top drummer would play some eight bar groove. Our drummer would have to match it and then try to top it and send it back over. And they would play the eight bar groove and it would go on and on. Our drummer always won, but he was 20 years old. He shouldn't have even been in. Anyway, which uh, <laughs> was amazing. It was the only thing he liked about Grace King was playing the drums, obviously. Uh, he might still be there. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so that, that's basically what's happening in Matthew's gospel, is you hear, this, you hear this language over here and you hear it answered over here the exact same way. So for example, if you fast forward, and I'll put it on the screen for you just in a second to chapter two. Joseph is still at the center of the story. Joseph gets four divine commands in chapter two, verse 13. Here, notice them on the screen. Rise. Number two, take the child and his mother. Three, flee to Egypt. And four, remain there. It's a four-beat rhythm. So you hear it on one side of the field, four-beat rhythm, and then you hear it on the other side. Very next verse. He rose, took the child and his mother, departed to Egypt, and remained there. You hear it one side, and then you hear the exact same thing on the other. A few verses later, it's not a four-beat rhythm, it's a three-beat rhythm, and you hear it on both sides of the field. Rise, chapter 2, verse 19, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Next verse, he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel of Israel so you hear it on one side then you hear it on the other but the first of all these call and response rhythms is actually located right here in our text in Matthew chapter 1 and it's not a four beat rhythm it's not a three beat rhythm it's a two beat rhythm and it's right here in verse 20 two commands take mary as your wife and name him jesus and then verse 4 24 he married her and he named him jesus And so you see how Matthew tells the story in a way that features something we might have missed otherwise. Namely, Joseph's meticulous attentiveness to the word of God. There's this pattern of he hears it, he plays it. It's got four beats, he plays four beats. It's got three beats, he plays three beats. It's got two beats, he plays two beats. Not three beats, he plays it the way he hears it. So here's the question for you this morning, the relevance for you, Christian Are you currently responsive to the word of God? Are you hearing it? Are you submitted to it? Are you believing that God's wisdom is best? Are you holding on to his promises? That, friends, is the life of faith. God has decided for all time that the measurement, the true test of faith, is in our responsiveness to his word. The name Emmanuel, it's supposed to be shocking. God with us. You could emphasize it, God with us. Or you could emphasize it the other way, God with us? With the likes of us? With us of all people? Who is Christmas for? Outsiders in rebellion or insiders who fail. Christmas is for guys like Matthew, the tax collector, the author of this gospel. Christmas is for guys like Peter who denied Jesus right at the moment when Jesus was about to triumph over evil. This is, Peter is the patron saint of every, everybody who fumbled the ball at the one yard line. That, that's that story. Matthew 1 isn't here as an FYI to those who happen to be interested in the story of baby Jesus every December. Matthew 1 is here so you can experience the power of God that holds you when your grip is failing. In the earliest centuries of Christianity, if you became a convert out of paganism, and put your trust in Jesus Christ. You became a follower of Jesus. You were taught the Apostles' Creed. Here were some of the first words you were taught doctrinally. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the very next statement, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And as a brand new believer, this is where your catechesis, your tutorials began right here. You learned this truth and when you grasped it, you were ready for the waters. You were ready to undergo baptism. And once you stepped into the waters of baptism, you would be asked a series of questions that matched what you had just been taught. So you would be asked in the waters, Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, died, buried, raised from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? And by reviewing these truths on the day of your baptism, guess what the early church was doing? Latching you in, tethering you to the mountain, Driving the anchor into the side of the rock, looping faith's cord through these massive climbing anchors so that you could persevere. Advent's truths are here for your own hope and Advent's truths are here so you can help somebody tomorrow who's wrestling with doubt. The person who shows up in your life tomorrow or next year or five years from now and they say, can I ask you a real question? Have you ever struggled to believe it? Have you ever had doubts about these claims? And you can say, absolutely. My grip has failed before, but the anchors are strong. And the anchors are strong enough to hold you when your grip fails. Friends, this morning, get tethered to the mountain. Get tethered to the rock that is Christ.